Poetry Says for another year. My name is Alice and I'm very excited to be bringing you another episode, my first one for 2020. I recorded this episode in early December and I thought, oh, I'm going to put it out before the end of the year. But then I thought, no, maybe just slow down. You've had a crazy year. Why don't you just start the new year with this interview? And so I put it away and didn't really think about it much. And I've just had the pleasure of listening to it back today to edit it. And it's just a lovely conversation. And I feel so lucky that I got to spend an hour with Laurie Duggan up in Sydney. We recorded on one of the many very smoky days in Sydney that they've been dealing with for the last couple of months. And... Yeah, it was just so kind of Laurie to to come and meet me and to spend this time with me and to share so much of his thinking and his process. Um, I was telling people back in Melbourne before I did the interview that I had this opportunity and I was going to get to speak to Laurie Duggan. I was so excited and I was asking people, you know, what do you want me to ask him? And uh, nobody had any really serious answers, but someone said, why don't you ask him what it's like being a living legend? I was like, I'm not going to ask him that question. But I sort of framed my interview around these journals that Laurie wrote in the early 70s, which I'll link to in the show notes. They're really fascinating journal entries. They're just called the Sydney Years. And in that, Laurie talks about what he's reading who he's spending time with, um, the go- like kind of the daily goings on, the minutiae of, of being a poet in Sydney in that time, um, the other poets that he's interacting with. And we start the conversation here talking about Ern Malley because he mentions in those journal entries the importance of Ern Malley in his early kind of transformations as a, a poet and a writer. And from there, we cover so much ground. Laurie talks about his thoughts on confessional poetry, how his poems come together, how he actually collects material and shapes it. He talks about his relocation to the UK and how that both influenced his work and also didn't change it as much as perhaps one might expect. I ask him about his relationships with the um, poets Pam Brown and Ken Bolton, who he's often referred to alongside. And he talks about their support early in his writing career. And the the crowd that he ended up with in Sydney uh, at first, which he describes as having a lot of testosterone and getting away from that crowd and finding a new collection of people who just enjoyed the process of writing. We also talk a little bit about what the Sydney poetry scene looks like today and what it looks like in the UK at the moment, where Laurie's just returned from. And then we move into the role of music in his work, the relationships between his writing and visual art. And then towards the end, we talk about the poets who have really been there throughout Laurie's entire writing career, and a little bit around whether it's possible to control one's readership or reception. So yeah, huge ranging conversation here. And again, Laurie was just so generous to spend this time with me and and share so much of his story. 
and I really hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. What the Earn Mally poem showed was that um, I didn't have to, it, it got me out of writing adolescent poetry. I didn't have to write about being depressed or, or, you know, not getting a girlfriend or any of these sorts of things. I could just kind of make something up. Mm. And um, that was really kind of quite powerful because, of course, a lot of, well, that's what a lot of poetry does anyway. Um, uh, and even though the sorts of things that I've written, you know, since then and lately obviously rely on, you know, personal observation, the Earn Mally poems got me away from feeling that I had to kind of, you know, bear my soul or, or, or whatever mm. and that that would be poetry. The interesting thing about you saying that, though, is that one of the reasons that I feel I'm drawn to your work so much is that there is such an incredible amount of honesty in it and when I say honesty I don't mean um, as you say bearing your soul mm. it's almost the way I would put it is a lack of ego you're not interested in prettying up facts or um, there's a phrase from the Sydney years that I wanted to quote you described some poetry as the sofa stuffed with similes and pyrotechnics that most people still regard as poetry. I loved mm. that so much. It's the total opposite of that. There's a, a frankness, a bareness, and an honesty, um, which is obviously the really antithetical to the Mally poems. Mm. Um, is honesty a word that resonates when when you think about your work or well, I guess it's, it's, it's almost a variation of truth to materials, mm. you know, um, an art thing. I mean, it's really, I guess what, what, I'm, what I'm not interested in is um, I'm not interested in my own psychology particularly. Uh, and I, I guess um, a way of, of clarifying that would be to say that I, I always had problems with the so-called confessional poetry that I really found I just didn't like a lot of that stuff because mm. I, one of the first things I would think when I was reading it was, why are you telling me this, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, so I've, I've really Sounds never, brilliant. you know, although there's, although there's some poems that of, 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 you know, Robert Lowell's that are okay, um, mostly I've, I haven't liked that sort of work. And, and um, yeah, I've just found it... Um, I think there's a weird dishonesty about it. I think it's playing with with readers' sort of feelings in a way that I wouldn't really want to do. Mm. Um, so the sorts of things that I put down, um, are, you could say they come from this person called Laurie Duggan. Um, they're observations that, that this person has made. But one of the things I'm aware of while I'm doing that is that the observations aren't necessarily, you know, kind of eternal truths. They might be jaded or or, or misguided. Mm. Um, but I'm I'm not out to to you know show my soul to anybody. Mm. Um, 
whether I even believe I have one or not, it's another another matter. But it's um, yeah, it's it's so it's really the sort of bumbling mistakes that a person makes can can appear in the poems. Mm. Um, yeah, and know, that's why I love yeah, them. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, or, or stupid ideas, all these sorts of things. Yeah. But they should be seen as being parts of the poem. You know, the poem consists in part of, of stupid ideas and, and, you know, kind of um, dumb notions and, and um, all of these things tied together. The thing that's holding it together is whether or not the poem actually works mm. as a piece of writing. Um, whether it just holds holds together or not, mm. uh, so that's the central thing, which is is, is a step away from the, the person. Um. Yeah, well, when I have tried myself to approximate the kind of writing that is in that you've just described, I you pretty quickly realise it's it's very very difficult. I mean, for me, at least, it's difficult to get myself out of the way enough to write in that way. Um, but I'm really interested with every poet that I talk to in their process, and I'd love to hear about the kind of work that goes into writing a poem that has that sort of freshness and the frankness and that, um, uh, you know, it never feels overworked. It, they they feel as if they just appear like a photograph, I guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, what is it like to well, write one of these? That's what I, that's what I'd hope that they would be like. Mm. Um, there's a couple of things I have to say about this. One of the one of the problems about writing in this manner is that sometimes if you um, submit things to journals, particularly if you submit things to journals that have got the kind of um, blind readership thing, people will look through it and, and it'll seem really slight and they might be interested in it. But when a whole lot of those things come together in a book, people tend to get what's going on. Right. So it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to actually put that sort of stuff out. Um, how that how it gets written is really, I suppose I'm kind of an inveterate notebook keeper. Mm. And the thing about notebooks is that uh, I've I've only taught I've only taught writing once and, and fairly briefly, and I didn't really enjoy teaching writing very much. But one of the things that I would say to people is um, keeping notebooks is a good idea, and that you shouldn't. I mean, one of the good things about, about keeping notebooks is it can stop you from being too self-conscious if you write things in them all the time. Mm. You know, so you may end up having things in, in them that have got nothing to do with what you're eventually going to put on the page. There might be a shopping list in there or, you know, you might have just copied a quotation from someone else down that you wanted to remember. And then there are all of all these other things and you're just making a note of them and not really thinking too hard about is this poetry or not. Um, and then you can go through it later, mm. and that's where the where the where the art part begins. When you look through things and and edit them, mm. um, you see what's actually going to. Some things just obviously aren't going to work. They're not going to fit. They're a bit too stupid. Um, How do the, you decide if something's too stupid? <laughs> well, it seems pretty apparent at right. the time. <laughs> okay, I think you know yeah. what on earth did I write this garbage for? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, you end up writing something that's, I suppose, that 
composing stuff is, is almost like a musical thing. You're just sort of fitting all of these phrases and bits and pieces together. And, you know, you want some kind of continuity there. Um, I mean, not all sorts of poetry do, but I tend to. Um, but uh, then it's just a matter of shaping it. Mm. Um, so I suppose that's, you know, how it comes out like that. Mm. People can look at something and think, well, you know, this this looks pretty slight and all that sort of thing. And quite often um, part of the, the business of writing like that is you don't want it to look as though it's been some, you know, precious jewel that you've been kind of carving away at. You want it to look as though it just got written. Mm. But actually making it look as though it just got written is, is, is work. Do you ever feel disappointed if a blind editor rejects a poem like that? Or are you pretty, um, pretty reconciled to that happening? I'm a bit reconciled to it. I mean, I've got, I have mixed feelings about blind editorship. I, I mean, I understand why people do it. Because I've seen the opposite of that, where you know some some sort of famous person sends a terrible poem into a magazine, and the people at the magazine think, "Oh, we've got to publish this because it's by so and so." I've seen this happen, um, but a lot of my, a lot of the people I know that edit edit journals will sort of, you know, if they don't like something, they'll 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 tell you, mm. um, and. The problem with yeah, the, so blind readership in some ways it has it has, it has its own problems. It's not really kind of um, necessarily as objective as it as it sets out to be. But I don't know. A number of people do it. A couple mm. of Australian online magazines do it. Yes, although having been involved in that process a tiny bit myself it's not as blind as it sounds because you can pretty quickly see the name pop up with the poem. So you've got to be really strict with yourself to make sure that you are not oh, yeah. connecting poem and And I mean, some submitter. people have got such a distinctive style right. and manner mm. that you know who it is anyway. Yeah. You yeah. know, I think, oh, it's got to be, you know, I don't know, Bob Adamson or someone like that. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose... Uh, if I if I was submitting stuff around more often than I do, people would probably pick up on that anyway. Mm. So the only people that are getting really getting a blind reading are people who are sort of new writers or people that you haven't seen anything of before. Um, and then it's not you know it's no harm to, to either them or, or or you. I mean you're either going to like it or you're not. Mm. Um, so yeah. Mm. I wanted to ask about your work at the moment because I know that you moved back to Australia in 2016 is that right I uh, no, it was um, it was it was only last year it was only 20, last year yeah, 2018 right in October. Okay. so how has that been as a transition from UK poetry scene to here and um, in terms of your writing now what does that look like well, it's it's interesting because I'd, I'd been in the UK for 12 years I, we moved there in um, 2006 and um, I, I, because I was already you know I wasn't I wasn't a young poet um, I think it wasn't going to make too much change to my writing the one thing I found that, that I did 
tend to do was because I would do readings at various places um, I became a lot more careful about my voice and my accent I mean I didn't I didn't get rid of an Australian accent but I, I tended to be a bit clearer right. in, in enunciating things than, than I, I would have done before because I was just made aware of the fact that I was going to be you know if I was too broad I was going to um, bypass people mm. so it made me aware of that the second thing that happened was that a lot of the usual sorts of things that I do, those kind of journal-type poems, I kept doing them, um, but quite often the poems got became more concise. This is the Allotments series? Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, uh, the, the Allotments series kind of parallels the Australian series called Blue Hills. Right. Uh, but Blue Hills are a lot more expansive than the allotments poems are. Mm. I mean, there's one or two allotments poems at the beginning that are that are more than a page long, but most of them are really only about half a page. Mm. And it was, I think that that had something to do with being over there. But all the time that I was over there, um, every couple of years or so, we'd come back here and we'd we'd usually go to both Melbourne and Sydney and occasionally to either Adelaide or Brisbane. Mm. So I still did some writing that was, you know, based here. Um, but I guess I brought to it, you know, what are the things that I'd, I'd picked up over there, essentially. Mm. Uh, it's a sort of, it's a fairly subtle thing, really, because I didn't, I don't think I, I actually changed the, the manner of the writing. I just... Um, tended to be a little bit more abbreviated. Mm. I mean, I did write a very long journal poem, Crab and Winkle, in the first year that I was over there. But partly the reason I did that was because I thought, um, you know, if you make a big move, sometimes you don't get going for a while. Right. And it was just a way of forcing myself to write. Mm. So it was really very much a notebook poem, and it was something that I figured I would just do over 12 months. Mm and have a section for each month and I would just make myself do stuff uh, and it ended up being a fairly big book I, I did edit it down from um, oh I think I think the published book's about a good it's at least a good 120 pages but I would have had about 180 mm. which was was kind of way too big but I knew I was going to have to do an edit job anyway right um, so I did that. I mean, and that was a little bit more expansive. But then after that, the things tended to become tighter and, and, and usually shorter. Mm. Um, it's really fascinating the way that you talk about the relationship between writing and place because I feel as if uh, so much of the conversation in Australian poetry is, oh, it's a poetry of place. We're all responding to place. But you're doing it in, in a completely different and, again, very I feel very honest way. Um, the the opposite of that being something that I heard another poet say once the misty cow poem <laughs> the poem that's kind of like the writer situated in the landscape and the poem is an expression of their relationship to the landscape which is what your poetry is but it's not um, again I can't get away from that phrase like prettied up it's not hmm. It's there are no there's no smoothing things out yeah, I guess also I don't, you know, I mean, there are a lot of poets that are known particularly for writing about a particular place, which mm. they do for their whole life. Um, of course, and of course, I've been around to very different places and written things in, 
you know. I mean, there might be a sense that some people might have that you can't really do that. You're not the poetry's not going to have an awful lot of depth if you're not really focused on a particular place. Mm. But I've never functioned like that. I've always kind of wanted to start taking notes on the ground wherever I am, mm. and that's going to going to be the you know the beginnings of a poem of some sort or other. I've, I don't I don't feel constrained to, to just write about one place. I mean that's not how I've lived my life. Mm. So um, yeah. So I mean I've you know I've, I've had stuff things written in America, things written in various parts of the UK, Europe, um, various Australian cities and country places. It's all been you know kind of grist to the mill basically. Mm. Um, and it's all really I guess part of the the approach to that sort of writing is is it's almost like it's a kind of form of anthropology right like documentary you've been you've been landed somewhere and then you've got to um describe the the, you know the behavior of the of 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 the people and and the um the describe the place and all of that sort of thing Mm. and uh that's how it works i mean it's a kind of it is a kind of anthropology in an odd way. Mm, just as it is, things as they are. Yeah. Your work is so often mentioned as part of a trio. When people mention Laurie Duggan, they also mention Pam Brown and Ken Bolton. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you're able to describe not the similarities but the differences between your work and Ken's work and Pam's work. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I wondered if maybe for the three of you that might get a little bit old sometimes because <laughs> it's like, why are we always mashed together in this way? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think any of us feel bad about it. Mm. Um, let, but let me go back here. Um, I, just, I think I've been just very fortunate in that I've, I've, where I've been in the early stages of my writing, I've, I've been with other people who've been really supportive but not necessarily writing the same way as I do mm. I mean when I was back at Monash I had Alan Wern and John Scott mm. now the three of us are completely different kinds of writer yes mm. um, it's less the case with with Pam and Ken and myself I mean I met Pam the first time I came up to Sydney and then I lost I lost contact with her for a bit but then from about the mid 70s on when I met Ken, oh, well, I guess I met Ken about 1973 or 74, um, got back together with Pam again. Um, since then it's been pretty much, and we did, we did do one little book together, um, let's call let, Let's Get Lost, mm. which was a kind of, um, uh, it was just poems that were res- partly responding to other poems and, and we felt we could do it because we'd sort of known each other for for, for such a long period um, we were in different places at the times the poems were written we're all in Australia I think I was in Brisbane Pam was in Sydney and, and Ken of course was in Adelaide um, although no Ken was part of the time he was in Europe he was he was he was traveling uh, I think there are differences between the way we work um, Pam is a lot more kind of Pam's poems are a lot more kind of chiselled than either Ken's or mine. They're really they're quite sharp. Um, 
Ken's are more, maybe more conversational than mine are. Um, and, and mine are maybe a bit more documentary than, than the other two. But part of the thing that brought us together was really, I think, when I first came up to Sydney, I um, used to hang around with the, the people that were doing Poetry Magazine, which had just become New Poetry. Mm. In fact, a poem I, I, part of the reason I came up to Sydney was that a poem I, I sent to them won their, one of their annual awards. Mm. And it was, you know, the magnificent sum of $100. <laughs> I read that in the journals. And, and, and publication in the magazine. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, well, it seemed fantastic in 1971 mm. when it happened. Uh, and, and, you know, strangely enough, John Scott had won it the year before, and both of us had won it with kind of bizarre sonnet sequences, which were quite different to each other. But for that reason, I came up and I, I was hanging around with the... Uh, new poetry people and, and that crowd for a while but I ended up I wanted to get away from um, oh, there was a lot of um, oh, there's a lot of testosterone going on in that scene there were a lot of you know people that wanted to be the major poet and um, I just wanted to get ended up wanting to get away from that and the scene that 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 had centered around ken was completely unlike that it was just you know there were all of these people that were writing and would get together and you know get smashed and and um, basically enjoy the process and i just felt a bit more comfortable in that environment because i didn't really you know i mean i'm quite confident in what i do but i didn't really feel a need to be you know the top of the heap or anything like that mm. And um, so that was part of the reason why I think we got together. Mm. And and then, of course, there are other similarities in, in our approaches to writing. I mean, I think we all felt that about about poetry, about you know the, the sort of pushy um, the pushy poets. Um, so I suppose that's that's about as close as I can get on that one. The pushy poets. That's so great. I yeah, reading. The Sydney is journal entries really conjures up a, a time and a scene and relationships. You're quite critical of certain of those poets. I think Michael Dransfield might be one. Yeah. Um, but the what strikes me is you're extremely critical of yourself, far more so than you are of, of anyone around you in your own work. And mm. moments where you sound really frustrated with, you know, what you're writing and the fact that you're not writing. Um, I wonder how you feel about Sydney poetry now and what it looks like coming back to it, you know, having been here for, I guess, about a year or a bit over a year now. Well, it's totally, it's, it's really changed completely. Um, I think there was a period through the, through the um, maybe through the 90s and the early 2000s when there didn't seem to be an awful lot going on, but now there is. And there's, a lot of, there's loads of younger poets that are just really good and are just sort of, you know, carrying on doing stuff. I mean, I'm thinking like, I don't know... Um, Toby Fitch, for example, who's been running the the reading series at um, um, oh, what's it 
its name? Sappho. Sappho, yeah. yeah. Uh, and f- for a while now, I mean, you know, he's a ball of energy and, and, and he's good too. And there's, you know, there's, there's um, uh, Jessica Wilkinson in down in Melbourne, um, people like, I don't know, Cameron Lowe and, and, and um, uh, Ellery Keith, um, all the you know all of these people are sort of are, are just really terrific, and they're sort of just you know they're doing their own stuff. They're just moving on, mm. and um, it it just feels pretty good generally. Um, it seems one difference that it seems to be the case between here and and, and the UK was um, you you got the sense there were a lot of sort of younger writers in the UK that you just felt they just wanted the old people to just get out of the way. um, (laughs) Well, is is that a bit of, is sort of a weight of history thing over there? There's a little bit, there's a little bit of that there, but I've never felt that here. I mean, I think, you know, if people don't like stuff, they don't like it, but um, they're not quite as kind of ageist about it. Um, And I think that that's, that's fairly good. I mean, I think not wanting to be, you know, the, the king of the, at the top of the heap and all of that sort of thing certainly helps mm. um, because I've you know I've, I've had never had any desire to do that. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to. I had some other th- ch- chain of thought going on, but it's kind of disappeared in the um, in the mercs. It'll come back. It'll come yep. back for sure. I wanted to uh, speaking of the UK. I really want to thank you specifically for the poem "A Northern Winter," which I came across in Cordite. Um, when I was living in London. Mm. It was a great comfort to me, particularly there's a line, tonight a reading in London, which I'm not going to. That's three London events I'll have missed this week, two because of weather, one inertia. And I spent so long in London thinking, I've got to go to that reading, I really don't want to go. Mm. And <laughs> just reading that, I was like, it felt like I had permission to yeah. to not go to things I didn't want to go to. Well, I did, I did go to quite a quite a few things over there I oh, think sure. that, well the time that I moved over there I'd, I'd moved from Brisbane where I was I'd really I was lucky if there was maybe one reading a year that I'd go to uh, and suddenly I was in a place where I was 50 miles out of London and could get a train in there and probably I'd go to readings about three times a month mm. um, three different sets of readings uh, and that was pretty good. I mean, that was just just partly to do with the fact that the place is just so big, and quite often, I mean, quite often the readings that I went to, there wouldn't necessarily be a lot of people at them. Mm. Um, they would usually be held in a in a bar or a pub or some, somewhere like that, and sometimes there were just you know two people and a dog. Mm. Um, but that was also partly the product of the fact that there were so many different scenes there that. Um, that, you know, that sometimes, you know, at various times of year it was harder to attract people and all of that sort of thing. Um, but it was, you know, that was still that was still pretty good. Uh, but, yes, I mean, I did sort of miss a few things and being um, an hour and a bit out of, out of the middle of the city quite often, you know, if it was rotten weather or something like that, quite often I'd think, oh, no, I'm not going. Um... Of course. I tried. I tried not. I tried to to get to everything that I really, really wanted to. Um, 
and you know I went to quite a few and I, I did for a while take photographs at the reading so I have, I've got an archive of, of photos from various um, London readings mm. um, that I did put I put some of the stuff online a while, a while back I put a whole bunch of them up on on Facebook at one point oh, okay um, I'd I'd had a blog when I was in the UK which I stopped doing on which I used to post those things regularly right um, <clears throat> but now I just I went back over them and just a few months back and just put all the, the best ones up um, I really wish I'd known you when I was living there because I was sort of vaguely aware that there were these other scenes that I could have contacted and, and been involved with but I just had no idea where to start and um, by the time it was about the time that we were leaving we're only there for about six months yeah I've started to realize where I probably should have been spending my energy but a lot of the time I was at some just very dire and boring events well it's, <laughs> it's hard to yeah it's hard to to lock into those things to start off with mm. I mean partly because I'd known um, indirectly um, David Miller Who's David's Australian, but he but he's been he's been in the UK since 1971 or so, and pretty much all of his writing has been done over there because he went there when he was about 20. Mm. And um, but he was running or co-running when I first got there a reading series, so I went to their readings, and that reading series split off into two different readings. And I went to both of those because the other person that was that was originally working with David, um, with a, guy, a guy called Jeff Hilson, um, who teaches at Roehampton University. And Jeff started a quite different series. It was a little bit more kind of avant than the series that, um, that David was running. And then also um, Tony Fraser, who was the, the, um, the publisher at Shearsman Books, would have, during the season, he'd have monthly readings, which were usually book launchings mm. and I was publishing with him and he'd started publishing my stuff before I moved over there or before he, he even knew I was going to move over there he'd, he'd got interested um, so I went to those those as well and read it some of them read it read in all of, all three of the series mm. and then there were occasional other things like the occasional reading at, at um, Cambridge or um, um, Elsewhere, up in Glasgow, at one stage, mm -hmm. um, and down in uh, there was a um, just the, the few months before I left, there was a, a poetry festival down in Dorset that people who edited a magazine that I used to you know send occasional stuff to put on a, an annual thing, mm -hmm. which was really good. So I did go to I did get to a few things there, mm -hmm. and while I was there, I would also get to I got a to the States on a couple of occasions and read there. Um, I read it, um, oh, the, the famous reading series in um, in New York, the, in the Bowery, which is which was like a series that had been going for years and years and years. Yeah, I know that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, a, a thing that I never would have imagined that I would have ever got to read it, but I read it that. So great. And um, and I read in around Boston a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the probably the the most interesting reading I, I, I ever um, did, and I mean interesting not because of me, um, was at the um, 
the New England Conservatory, which is basically, of course, a music school. Mm. And there was a woman called Ruth Lepson there who was, a, who was a poet, but she'd been working there for a long time. And she, due to somebody else telling her about it, she'd got me on to, to read to um, a class that she had. So these people were all musicians and they were just spot on. They were amazingly good. The questions they asked were just, just incredible and uh, they really so made you work. Yeah, right. Um, and I just thought, yes, I mean, they, they really understood a lot about placement of words and, and um, uh, of, about poetry as music. Mm. Um, and it was just, it was one of those things you walked away from with, a, with a, you know, an inner glow, basically. That's so great. Um, yeah. You do mention musicians in your work um, relatively frequently. Um, some jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a group that I looked up. I wish I'd written them down now. So like a doo-wop group that you mentioned mm. going on in the background. Uh and yeah, I guess it makes sense that the, that would be an environment where you would get those great questions because of what you described before in terms of you're, you're collecting the material in this sort of anthropological fashion and then what you're doing is you're creating a score, mm. I suppose. Um, well, it's, it's uh, yes, I've always... I mean, the way that I put things together, I think music is kind of a, a, a sort of dominant thing. I mean, if it's not going to fit something that I feel works in a kind of musical way then it's not going to be put in there mm. and that's where I've, that, that's what I've had music people have picked up on with the writing because it's not obviously musical in the sense that it's not something that's kind of like rhyming quatrains it's not like it's not like a song um, but I had once um, when when I was before I'd, I'd gone to the UK I'd gone to a um, a conference in Perth and Andrew Ford was there the guy that does the a lot of the ABC music programs and he he, he picked something I, I had a poem that was basically you know it was fairly lightweight it was a it was a satirical poem and it had there was a certain point at which there was a there was a kind of pause in the line but the pause wasn't indicated by by anything in particular so a non-musical reader might have just read it straight through without the pause he said there's a pause here isn't there I thought yeah he's 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 right he's spot on about that Um, I'm just trying to think of what the what the line was Um, oh yeah it was it was a satire about about modernism uh, and you know it had a line, and the name of the dance is the is the modernism. But the way that it would come out was, and the name of the dance is the modernism. Right. So there's just a tiny little gap there, and he just picked up on that straight away. He, he read it as though it was something that was that would have been set to music. So great. Mm. Oh, yeah, I'm really glad that we picked up on that theme with the relationship between music because I was thinking another thing I wanted to ask you about was visual art because I know that's a, another really huge interest of yours. Um, uh, yeah, is is that 
I love looking at your blog and looking at the photos that you put up there. They're, they're mm. so, to me, there seems to be such a direct relationship between those photos and your written work. Mm. Um, are there visual artists working now that you are um, finding inspiration from? Um, there's so many, really. I mean, I, I, it's, it's really hard to pin them down. I mean, I keep, I keep going to... To um, to shows and looking at things. I mean, I think I share both the music thing and the and the visual art thing with Ken with Ken Bolton. Right. But I mean, Ken's been actually physically working in the world of visual art. He was working at the Contemporary Art Foundation in Adelaide until he retired about a year ago. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll I'll keep going to things and I'll keep picking things up. I actually have done. Um, a series of, of poems called After Images, which have, uh, Nicholas Pounder bought out a limited edition of. There are like there are only about twenty six of them. He did mm. a beautiful job, but those poems are going to be in the next book, which is coming out in um, April next year. Oh, great! With um, with Duramondo, um, and they're a section of it, um, After Images, and they're strange poems because they're um, some of them you could say with descriptions of paintings. Some of them are ideas of, of paintings that a certain artist might have made but didn't necessarily make. Mm. And some of them are about the artist. So they're not really... I'm, I'm a bit uncomfortable with, um, with the, the business of ekphrastic poetry. I mean, there was an ekphrastic poetry issue of Cordite magazine and I, I kind of held back I thought should I send something in and I thought no because I thought I'm not really I don't know that all of these poems are doing that sort of thing and that um, I, I've also had there was an English poet that I knew a little bit who was um, a particularly kind of grumpy individual who sort of just hated the idea of ekphrastic poetry and, and <laughs> you could see why he did because he because he thought of it as being, well, you know, you can't translate paintings into poems. And in that sense, he's right. But I'm not trying to translate paintings into poems. What, what I'm, I'm doing is allowing the paintings or in, in a way to influence the poems. Mm. But I'm not, I would like the result to be something that somebody could read without necessarily having seen the painting. Um, so it's yeah, it's a bit, it's it's a kind of complex thing, but it's it's. Um, I, I think it'd be a very disappointing world if you if you didn't pick things up from other art forms, or if you couldn't. Um, and so I mean, I think the relationship of the work to music is 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 similar in a way, mm. because I mean, I'm not a musician. Um, I do. Um, as far as visual art goes, of course, I do take photographs, but I don't really see myself as being, you know, I'm just a guy who takes photographs. I, I wouldn't sort of, um, I wouldn't have any fantasies about exhibiting them or doing anything like that. But if I put them up online, people can look at them. Mm. Um, so they're not really, it's a sort of secondary thing. I mean, the writing really comes first. But it's that relationship, as you say, it's being able to draw from those worlds. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. and you can, you know, you get excited by stuff. I mean, I did, um, in the last, since I've been back here, I saw um, 
I saw a show that had work by Elizabeth Cummings in it, and then I saw an entire show of her work, and I didn't, I hadn't known anything about her, and, and you know, she's probably you know well into her eighties now, a fantastic painter, mm. um, and it was just really terrific to see all this stuff, um, you know, things that she'd done sort of since the since the nineteen fifties or early sixties. Yeah, just very good, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just a real charge to see something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something that I forget to do or don't make myself do often enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to ask you about this one line in Mangrove, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna dive into that now, which is a total uh, detour. Sure. So my great uncle is the poet John Blight. And mm-hmm. there is a line in Mangroves where you say, I used to be Ezra Pound, now I'm John Blight. And I just thought that was so funny because um, I think of him as Uncle Jack, hmm. great Uncle Jack. I don't really like his poetry very much. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, you know, like he's got a billion books out. and Yeah. Yeah. Well, all, all that sort of, all that seashore stuff that he wrote, you know, there's lots of very sharp stuff in there. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, but it's not in the same, I, I mean, I, was, I guess I was just, I was joking about my own kind of youthful pretensions because because when I started out writing, I, I really did um, think, you know, that it was some kind of... Um, competition and that you know I wanted to align myself with all of these people like I mean of course I, I still I still like Ezra Pound and I still read all of those things but um, then that came that period in which I thought well I don't you know I don't want to be I really don't want to be running the show mm. and so that's really basically what what that was about it was really about sort of you know thinking well you know I'm you're walking along um, the seashore. Yeah, I, well, but also, I mean, there's a wonderful, um, wonderful line of Nigel Roberts's, which I, I, I've always kept in my mind, and w- which he wrote sort of fairly early in the piece, uh, which, which was um, to be a poet among poets, not to be the poet. And I thought, yep, absolutely. That's that's the you know, and I mean, there are other there are other people that that were influential in that regard too. Chris Hemmingsley, for example, in mm. Melbourne. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. back when Chris was doing um, Ear in a Wheatfield in the 1970s, there was also no sense of sort of, of hierarchy there. He'd published lots of different stuff and it was just basically... Um, well, it was, it was, it was em- empowering rather than discouraging because it didn't have you, you know... I mean, there are other magazines that I won't necessarily mention that would do things like they would get a, a famous poet and they would print the work of the famous poet on special coloured paper in the middle of, of the magazine. <laughs> Chris would never have done anything like That's that. So I mean, he had everything just next to each other. Yeah. And, you know, he'd just structure the magazine by the, the poems rather than by the poets. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, I miss collected works so much. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean... I, I go to the Nicholas Building every week for mm. um, training, and I mean, it just it doesn't feel real that it's not there anymore. 
he had to stop. Absolutely. He could, yeah. I mean, it, it ended up, I mean, it, it was a collective when it started and there were several people involved, but it ended up just being Chris and Retta. Mm. And, yeah, it's a lot of work. And you've got to be there all the time, every day. Yes. I mean, at least now he's got a setup at home where people can phone him up and say, "You're going to be there." Oh, I didn't know oh, that. Oh yeah. Oh, he's got a, He's got. He's got a. Um, he refurbished a shed at the back of their place and has got a lot of the books there. He got rid of everything except poetry. He got rid of all of the sort of fiction and various other things he had. But he's still getting stuff. Oh, he's that's still, so great. Um, he's still contactable, and you can you can go there and you can you can buy stuff from him. But he doesn't have to do it every day. That's really He just good. does it when he wants to. Because oh, well. I think he also wanted to. He always had trips over to the UK to see his brother in particular, and he always wanted to be able to do that. Mm. Which you can do that now because it's just entirely up to him when you. You look at stuff. Yeah, it's a bit more I haven't been out. since he's moved it uh, because I haven't been down to, to Melbourne since then, but um, I'm hoping to get down next year, so I'll definitely be going there. Yeah, great. Oh, that's really good to know. Thank mm. you for telling me that. Um, I've kept you for, for nearly an hour. Is there anything else that you that is on your mind poetry-wise that you'd like to talk about? Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Uh, I'm quite happy to sort of ramble, but but but, but I kind of need to be set <laughs> off in a certain direction. <laughs> I'm happy to let you ramble. One of the things I, I we haven't come to yet is when we were first communicating by email, I said, um, "Who are the poets that, uh, if you were to pick, you know, one poet who has been particularly important to you, who would they be?" And you mentioned Paul Blackburn, who I found out is categorized as one of the black mountain school but also resisted that label as i think pretty much all of them did mm. and a guy called philip whalen who was san francisco kind of beat poet person mm-hmm. um i'd love to hear what ways those two were have been important to you well behind those two william carlos williams right um mm. and I, I mean i got put onto williams it was quite interesting it was my first year of university and i um had some poems that I that I took to my English tutor at the time was Patrick McCackie, who later moved into he became a fine arts person and, and eventually a gallery director. He was director of um, National Gallery of Victoria for a bit, and then he, he was director of a gallery in um, across in Massachusetts. Um, but at that stage, he was um, he was tutoring English at Monash. And I took him some poems and he kind of basically rolled his eyes and said that I wrote as though the 20th century hadn't existed. Wow. <laughs> and, and, um, but more importantly, he said he loaned me um, the collected earlier poems of William Carlos Williams. Uh, it was pretty astute of him because he was really, uh, personally, I think he was really... Um, very much into all of the confessional poets, you know, Lowell and all of that. But he didn't put me onto them. He put me onto onto Williams. And I've, you know, Williams has just always stayed with me because they're, you know, they've, I mean, Williams is, is just is so sort of vast in a way that you get people from, um, that basically just want to write, you know, writing school people that just want to write short lyrics that sort of, you know, go for the red wheelbarrow poem and all of that sort of thing 
But interestingly, um, the Red Wheelbarrow was originally part of a, of a, a book um, in which prose and poems were mixed. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. And what happened, well, the, the, the earlier, um, the collected earlier poems that I got had been put together by Williams himself, you know, some couple of years or so before he died. And he'd, uh, there were earlier books. There was a book called Cora in Hell, which was a prose poem. There was one called um, the, the, the Descent of Winter and another one called Spring and All. Mm. And, and the Wheelbarrow poem was in Spring and All. But those things all mixed... Um, uh, well, Cora was entirely prose, but the other two mixed prose and poetry as a kind of journal thing. Mm. And they, they became available. There was New Directions in the States put out a, a, a book called, um, oh God, what was it? But it was, it was a book that contained those pieces as they originally appeared. Mm. And then subsequently, you know, later when, um, when the, the, uh, the proper collected poems of Williams and two volumes were done, they printed them as they originally appeared, except they left Cora in Hell out for some bizarre reason. Mm. But those were the sorts of poems that I just found really influential, where he could sort of he, he could sort of jump from one thing to another. Mm. Um, they were very journal-like, and I mean that that's behind just about everything I've written. Um, Blackburn and Whalen were just really. Um, I think Blackburn was just musically just extraordinarily good. Um, I mean, a lot of his poems. There's a lot of his poems that sort of um, make people a bit uncomfortable now because they seem really kind of, you know, kind of beatnik sexist, uh, which they sort of, which they are. Mm. But you know, if you overlook that and you just read through a whole lot of stuff, um, and and he also began writing, you know, journal kind of journal poems in his last um, couple of years. Um, it's it's. He's pretty good. He also translated a lot of Provencal poetry, which is interesting because that was a particular, um, a particular lot of poets who who were very much involved in music. Mm. Um, Philip Whalen, uh, Whalen's tone is just fantastic. I mean, he ended up being the um, the head monk at the Zen Centre in San Francisco. Right, I think I read that, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, he spent most of the last years of his life, he didn't do any writing or didn't do much writing at all. But he wrote a couple of fantastic books. Um, one of them, um, uh, Scenes of Life at the Capitol, which was about uh, or a year or so that he spent in Japan. Mm. And... It's a journal poem, and and he also writes of, of himself as being a. Um, I think he refers to himself as being a great big booby at one stage. <laughs> um, nice. He he refers to himself as being a sort of a slightly nutty American who has been cast loose in um, in Japan and is not really um, as adept with with the manners as he should as he ought to be. Mm. Um, and there was another book of his around about the same time called Severance Pay. And, uh, you know, again, I mean, the way that these poems, the way that these things appear on the page, um, I just found very attractive. Yeah. Um, Are you familiar at all with a poet called Sid Corman? Yeah, I am. Um, I think he was a friend of Harold Stewart's, just going back to 
where okay. we started with yeah I think Stuart moved over to Japan and ended up hanging out with Sid um, interesting because yeah. they're very different poets right yeah I mean you know um, Stuart was very much um, you know rhyme and meter and all this sort of thing mm. I mean I think what probably got brought them together was just, just their interest in in things Japanese yeah and being expats basically it also reminds me of a story that Chris Hemsley told me one time in Collected Works. He said that Sid Coleman used to send him, I think, haiku and say, can you publish this? But it has to be on its own page. Mm. And Chris was like, I love it, but I can't do that for you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what, I mean, because well, Sid Coleman um, edited a journal called Origin right. that went through several series, and it was pretty fantastic. I'm a bit dubious about Coleman himself as a poet. Um, Interesting. He published he published a kind of what what purported to be a selected poems, which was two volumes of about fifteen hundred pages. He's, he wrote so much, like he published so yeah. much of his own stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. And yeah. and again, I mean, I know people in the UK in particular who are just devoted Coleman fans, and who mm. you know would probably knife me if they've heard me say any of these things. <laughs> But he, but he also I mean the other thing I found was he did he did he did quite a lot of translation, mm. but quite often if you put his translations next to another one they're just not so good. Mm, interesting. Um, he translated um, well the French poet Rene Char, and I had that book of his translations for quite some time because there, there wasn't anything else around. Mm. And then Mary Ann Kors, another American poet. Um, translated Shah much later in the piece and her translations are just so much better mm-hmm. they just you look back to his and, and there are bits of them that seem quite wooden they right. seem a little bit translatorese yeah whereas she seems to have eliminated that and uh, and I've, I've felt the same about other things that I've, I've been able to compare mm. so I'm not really I'm not really a big Corman fan I've still got that great big two volume selected sitting around at home and I kind of don't quite know what to do with it. <laughs> they hang around, don't they? There's yeah. like I mean it's a really yeah. quite attractive book and, right. and um it's I mean it's printed on rice paper but but that's because there are so many pages. Right. <laughs> um Oh, this yeah. is so funny. Um it's so good to hear that perspective because yeah, I I definitely swallowed Corman whole. Um yeah, that's really great to hear. Um, the last little thing I wanted to just sort of uh, present you with was that there's a, another little line from the Sydney Years piece in which you describe your work at a certain moment. I think it's about early, early 70s, 72, 73. You, you say, fragments, fragments, thefts and blunders. And I just thought, that's the best thing I've ever read. That's so great. Um, it's so self-critical as well. Mm, um, pretty accurate, though. Ah, oh, it's just—it's just a wonderful way to put it. Do you, are you have you softened towards your own work now, or are you still—is that critical voice still there? It's still there. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I—I I, I will write. I'll dump a lot, dump a lot of stuff. Mm. And there are some things occasionally, if I put a book together too quickly, there are some things I regret putting into it. Um, but, um, I, you know, I mean, not so much. There's books that I'm really more than happy with, the Allotments book being one of them. Mm. Um, but there's others where I think, oh, you know, if, 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 I, if the manuscript had sat around for another few months, I would have left that one out. 
but I don't feel you know I, I, it's it's an odd world now because you can't um, you can't control your readership. I mean, not that I'd want to control my readership, no. but you can't do it because um, there's, there's a well, the English poet Jeremy Prin, who's sort of very highly regarded in sort of Cambridge circles. Mm. Uh, refuses to allow anyone to reprint his first book partly because his first book was much more like a lot of the conventional English poets of the of the time that the um the late 50s or so and he doesn't really want to be identified with them at all mm. but in a way you can't do that anymore because I mean you can you can put what you want in a, in a collected poems or in a selected poems but people can always go back and find things online. Yeah, it's never going to die. You know, mm. and I don't feel bad about that. I think, you know, I'm fine. If they want to do it, they can do it. Mm. Um, if I put a selected poems together, basically what I'm saying is, look, this is what I think's, you know, the good stuff or a selection of the good stuff. Mm. But you might well like something that I haven't put in there mm. or might not like some of the stuff that's there. And... The thing about a selected is that's just what it is. But but often um, when people try and control things to a, to a greater extent than that, well, you know, you just can't do it. It also makes it that much more tantalising because now yeah. I want to go and Google um, Prince's first book. <laughs> well, I don't, so, yeah. I, yeah, it may it may still be difficult even to sort of get up get onto online. Yeah, but potentially. The, but it's something that was in print. Mm. And it's around somewhere. It's there somewhere, And yeah. eventually, I mean, you know, Prin's still alive, but after Prin dies, there's not going to be anything stopping someone digging it up. And I mean, a friend of mine in the UK who knows Prin pretty well wanted to include some poems from it and got the go-ahead, mm. but then at the last minute, Prin pulled the plug and ah. said, no, I don't want to see this. Interesting. Which made it very difficult for my my friend, who's a who's a, a good friend of his. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's a bit um, it's a bit crazy to 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 want to do that. To I mean, I guess it's like control trying to control your reception, mm. which you can't do. You can't no. Well, I've kept you for probably too long now but it's been such a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for taking the time thank you for taking the interest <laughs> <laughs>